Relevant content for our members by our members. This is TMC Connect. All right. Good afternoon or late morning, everyone. This is Rich Swarbinski with the Mortgage Collaborative uh, here once again for the last week in mortgage today, like we are every Tuesday at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern, uh, our weekly whirlwind through all the latest happenings in the mortgage industry. Uh, Each week, I hand select one of our lender members to be my co-pilot in that conversation and back again is the CEO and president of Megastar Financial Holdings, Anita Padilla-Fitzgerald. Anita, thanks for joining me again. Absolutely. All right. So no shortage of stuff to discuss this week with the election, I think, kind of in the rear view. Uh, Who knows? (laughs) But uh, it appears we're headed for a change in the White House. Um, Certainly a number of different things related to our industry and the housing industry that could be impacted and affected by that. And I want to take the beginning of today's conversation to just touch on a few of those things uh, for all of our listeners in attendance. uh, Any comments, questions, thoughts, please don't feel like you have to wait till the end. Um, Go ahead and use the chat or the Q&A function here on Zoom, and we'll voice those aloud and incorporate them into the conversation. So, Anita, let's start with the GSEs. Fannie and Freddie, uh, obviously, under the Trump administration, we're on a path towards exiting conservatorship under the directorship of Mark Calabria. Uh, You know, certainly under a Biden administration, Calabria, not long for the world. Um, Conventional wisdom uh, is that that path towards exiting conservatorship likely stalled. GSEs would most likely stay under government conservatorship. Uh, would love to know your thoughts on the matter. Well, you know, my thoughts on the matter is the Biden administration hasn't specifically, you know, given their uh, directive with regard to the agencies and government conservatorship versus privatization. But, you know, thoughts to ponder are, um, you know, as an industry, uh, what what that really means with regard to the agencies and if they were to privatize, uh, if they were to remain under the government conservatorship, some people have talked about them becoming a utility. So in the privatization um, sector, what we have uh, read or what we've heard is that they need to raise $234 billion. Um, to uh, be in a position that would make them equal to other financial uh, institutions with regard to reserves in their balance sheet. In doing so, you know, the question is posed, what happens to interest rates? Uh, will, you know, the, the agencies will need to um, be able to raise those funds either, you know, and are they going to increase interest rates? So some projections that I've read is that uh, they, in order to improve their returns, uh, they need to improve them anywhere from 20 to 40%, and that would reflect in the market um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 10 to 20, 30 basis points uh, with regard to uh, interest rates. So. That's something I think that we need to look at. If they stay under government conservatorship, um, they wouldn't have the need to raise those funds. So really, what happens to the market? Will the market be more consistent as we've been traditionally and following you know, a certain algorithm as far as establishing interest rates? 
So privatization, we need to think about GFEs and other uh, loan-level price adjusters that we might be faced with and increase in interest rate. I think under the government conservatorship, um, you know, Biden has has talked about his uh, first-time home buyers tax credit and and their um, desire to help home ownership and get more people, uh, uh, you know, working toward owning a home. Is as we all know, owning a home is is a great path to wealth. So uh, his proposals, uh, from what I've seen, and there's not really been anything defined as far as the proposals are concerned will help uh, uh, young borrowers who haven't otherwise been able to save and, um, of course, minority uh, buyers in that demographic is usually lower income and their ability to save help some of those type of people get into homes. Um, you know, the subject of the utility is interesting because with the utility, um, you do have, from, from what I understand, and um, I'm not an expert, but they do have a um, protocol with regard to rate of return being set. So we wouldn't see things happening like we saw with the FHFA um, implementing a loan level price adjuster, basically overnight costing mortgage owners uh, millions and millions of dollars. Um, as we know, the CFPB single authority was ruled um, uh, by the Supreme Court is now saying that the President of the United States can fire that single authority, uh, whereby prior to that, the single authority uh, was able to make decisions. The FHFA is now being challenged, um, and I believe the Supreme Court will be hearing that challenge in December as having um, a, a single authority. Uh, but uh, that would be an example of utility versus the a the F. I've never been able to do that very well. The FHFA um, being able to implement uh, like they did with that um, uh, adverse market adjustment that we saw. So those are some kind of high level comments. Um, any questions? Otherwise, I can keep going. Yeah, no, it is God, it, as you noted, I mean, so much to unpack here. It's funny because the lead up to the election, almost no talk about housing issues, yet we're starting to see right now, and it, because it's been four years, a change in the White House, the changes it can mean to our industry, uh, you know, starting with Fannie and Freddie, you know, I think those that are for uh, Fannie and Freddie leaving conservatorship, the reasons are obvious. You go back to the mortgage meltdown in 07 and 08, uh, the government being on the hook for just billions of dollars in losses uh, on, on non-payments, uh, the government having to bail out Fannie and Freddie, that ended up being an intensely profitable <laughs> bailout for the federal government, still is to this day. One of the things I don't think that's talked about enough about privatizing Fannie and Freddie or deprivatizing Fannie and Freddie is they're pumping billions of dollars in profits into the federal government right now. Um, you know, as we all know, any, any kind of revenue spigot that big, it's tough to turn off. There's things that would have to be adjusted with that. But I think what you noted at the beginning is my biggest fear 
of the agencies being taken out of conservatorship. And that's what could happen to interest rates. The, you know, the primary reason interest rates are so low, one, the Fed is obviously buying the living hell out of the MBS market. Um, but for non-Fed buyers, that implicit government backstop and guarantee on the bonds that are formed when companies like Megastar sell loans to the agencies, that makes those bonds more attractive. It makes investors pay higher yields for them and lowers interest rates um, in the process. So, um, you know, that, that certainly was one of my fears, you know, had Trump won and had the GSEs stayed down that path, it could have been very disruptive to the interest rate market and the mortgage market in general. Look at all the benefit borrowers are getting right now from refinancing and lowering their payments. People able to buy homes now because of rates being as low as they are. You know, you bump rates up to four, four and a quarter percent. You know, think of all those people that have refinanced that wouldn't have been able to, people that would not have been able to buy homes that otherwise would have been. Yeah. And, you know, I asked myself really as a mortgage banker, um, you know, my why. So, so what's your why? Why do you want the agencies um, to privatize? And how does that help us as an industry? So if they are under the, the government the way they are today, how does that help us as an industry? If they become a utility, how does that help us with, as an industry? And then ask myself the same question, taking off my business owner hat and putting on you know, my hat as, a, as an American citizen. And you know, what, you know, how do those variables help me? And, um, you know, I, I haven't done a ton of study on the utility, but, you know, I think the utility is, 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 is it, it's interesting, right? So utilities can be public or private. And I think that's something that I'm sure the MBA is looking at. But as members of the MBA and members of the Mortgage Collaborative, you know, we have a voice and we need to make sure that um, we're expressing our voice and understanding what what it is we're voicing and what we're saying. So, you know, it really goes back to the why. So why do we want them to privatize? You know, they're going to have to come up with the money. To your point, Rich, it's going to be a tough pill to swallow because the government has had, you know, billions of dollars pumped in. But we also have to look at the future. I mean, we're dealing with COVID. Look at all of the people who have um, gone into forbearance and all the renters that have gone into forbearance. So you start with the homeowners who have gone into forbearance. When they come out of forbearance, what will happen? So they'll either go ahead and, and modify and add that balance to the back end of their mortgage right and move on. Some of them will continue to make their payments. Hopefully they will. We have what we're thinking is the second wave of COVID with these spikes. We don't know what's going to happen to furloughs and companies. As we all know, across the country, you know, a lot of these restaurants are suffering. Uh, they were at 50% capacity. Um, I know the states that we operate in, they've gone back to 25% capacity. So all of those things, you know, matter. Um, your event that was canceled hotels, people who park cars, all of those industries. So you look at um, the renters who aren't paying rent to the people who own those properties today, you know, what's going to happen? So just like the mortgage owners aren't able to write a check for the payments that they missed three months, four months, five months, six months, 12 months, 
do we think that renters are going to be able to make up those rent payments and fees and penalties? You know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe they just decide to move. So then the people who own those rental properties are out that money. My point is that um, what's going to happen to the agencies when all of these loans, um, if these loans default, right? So it goes back to the very beginning when we started talking with the money that they need to raise to have on their balance sheet so they can get through these types of hurdles. So the timing, you know, timing is everything. So here we sit. We, we know that people can still uh, uh, qualify for COVID forbearance through the end of the year, but we have next year, we have the winter to get through. So, you know, I, I guess it's kind of premature to be talking about what the Biden administration is going to do, because I think there's a lot to be seen in the next, you know, six to 12 months with how we fare out of when we, and we're not out of COVID, right? So, you know, there's still a lot to be seen. Absolutely. Yeah. Still so much unknown as it relates to just employment and performance of loans, loans and forbearance that could greatly affect uh, all these things we're talking about and move them completely to the back burner. Uh, I am with Anita Padilla Fitzgerald, the president and CEO of Megastar Financial, leading independent mortgage banking company, one of our members based out of Denver, Colorado. Uh, we're talking about potential changes to the mortgage industry um, as we head into the latter part of 2020 and into 2021. Uh, any questions that anybody in attendance has for myself, Anita, please feel free to pump them into the chat, Q&A. Uh, we'll be happy to voice them aloud. Anita, let's turn our attention to the CFPB. So I, I think, you know, if, if uh, Calabria is the first person that's gone, the, the second person is probably Kathy Craninger, uh, the head of the CFPB. Uh, Trump appointed a Supreme Court ruled this past summer that the president has the authority to remove the director from that position with no other sort of congressional approval. You have to assume uh, that Joe Biden would do that, assuming he takes office on January 20. Uh, one of the names that's being rumored as a replacement for Craninger uh, is Chris Peterson, who was a special advisor to Richard Cordray under the Obama CFPB. Um, you know, if that uh, some other names have been thrown about that are, you know, they're very liberal, very consumer protection oriented names. Um, so uh, I guess let's start with um, that. Now, while the president can dismiss the director, of the CFPB, the new appointee still has to be approved through the Senate. As we all know, the Senate still hangs in the balance. Republicans still hold a 50 to 48 edge. Um, with a couple seats in Georgia still on the line. So, um, you know, let's hearken back to, you know, six or seven years ago, my last job as a lender before taking this role, one of the last things I, I was tasked with, with was un unwinding all of our marketing service agreements because of the bank I worked for and their fear of, you know, potential respite implications of, of those types of arrangements. Um, would love to hear your thoughts just on a potential change at the head of CFPB and as uh, the CEO of a large independent mortgage banking firm, what thoughts go through your head as that potentially looms? So, you know, for me, I go back to what I said earlier is, um, you know, what's my concern? What's my why? So, uh, you know, what's my concern if uh, Fannie and Freddie privatize? You know, what 
what's you know what what concerns do I have as a business owner and what concerns do I have as a as a, a citizen? Um, same thing with the CFPB. So I think a major concern that uh, the industry had, and when I put on my business owner hat, was rule by enforcement. So. Um, as we all know that when um, Trump uh, uh, replaced uh, and put Craninger in place that we had you know less rule by enforcement. So um, her position was more pro-business than it was pro-consumer. However, as we also know that that uh, uh, single entity was uh, dismantled. So now what we have is, uh, potentially, you know, uh, the Biden administration um, uh, put somebody in place. You know, there have been names. The name I heard was Katie Porter. Um, but with that said, they didn't. They don't have the power that they had. But they do um, have the ability to lead and interpret. Um, to your point, we still have. We're still going to have more of a Republican side. So there's still going to have to be um, some balance in the middle. But you know, is this is this as far as the CFPB is concerned? One of the concerns I had, and I had heard or read somewhere, I couldn't tell you where, that you know the Trump administration was thinking of removing the skin in the game rule, and you know, to me, I just about crawled out of my skin because it's my opinion, um, my humble opinion. But what do I know? that I think credit is in a pretty good spot right now. People who should own homes own homes. And to go back and open the market again to people who aren't really qualified and um, falsely inflate real estate values and have people just purely speculating and buying homes literally brought our country to our knee. So when I look at the CFPB rules, did I like the LO comp rule and was implementation a pain? Ugh, it was horrible. But as a as a consumer, I think it was good. You know, it why should I be able as I'm not a licensed loan officer, but if I were, and, and, and just even having licensed loan officers, right? You didn't even have licensed loan officers. What gives them the right to charge one person three points and another person one? And what gives Wall Street the right to go out and market private mortgage backs? with no skin in the game with regard to loss and then incent a loan officer by paying them a higher commission to sell a more risky product. So the three-day rule, you know, why shouldn't a consumer get their figures three days ahead of time? They should. So to me, again, with the Biden administration coming in, I don't see a lot of change. I see that, um, you may get somebody who's more uh, pro-consumer, but then we have the uh, other side who will more than likely equalize. So I just, I'm not overly concerned about it. I don't see it as a really big change, but you know, I'm always interested to hear people's why because I don't know everything. And sometimes people tell me their why and it makes a lot of sense and maybe something I haven't thought about. Rich Swarbinski with the Mortgage Collaborative here with Megastar Financial President and CEO Anita Padilla Fitzgerald talking about potential changes to the mortgage industry. Uh, a couple of the things I want to touch on there, Anita, before I do, uh, had a question come in. Rob Crisman, I think some people may know that name. Uh, what stance is Megastar taking with work from home versus asking employees to return to the office? 
Um, first, hi, Rob. How are you? Long time. Um, our position has been that I have really um, just let people make their own call because I don't, as an employer, want to debate uh, COVID. Um, and if people are comfortable and they don't have an underlying uh, condition, we have allowed them to come back to work, but we haven't mandated that they have to come back to work with the exception of certain positions that uh, require that they be in the office to do their job. So, um, but for the most part, we're allowing people to work from home. Um, we're a fully cloud-based company, so it really hasn't been an issue for us um, from a productivity or quality perspective. It seemed to, it, it's worked for us, you know, very well. Thanks, Anita. Thanks, Rob. And that blur you hear in the background is my French bulldog snoring. So just uh, hopefully it's not too disruptive. <laughs> um, some other items, uh, Anita, that I'm just going to throw out there at you that are being bandied about as things we could see from a Biden administration. Um, first time home buyer tax credit. We saw Obama do something similar about a year or so into uh, his term that had some positive impact. And I want to say it was one of the first couple springs that he was in office as it related to purchase activity, student loan forgiveness clearly could have a big impact with first time home buyers that otherwise may not be able, um, to buy a home. Um, and, um, any, anything there that uh, is of particular interest to you and uh, that you'd like to see happen for the industry? <clears throat> well, a couple of things. One, before we get off the CFPB, one thing I think that as, as mortgage owners, we do need to be aware of is how uh, the CFPB is going to look at um, consumer complaints with regard to the servicing. So I do think that we need to have a strong voice there. And just like the meltdown and just like what we've just gone through with like drinking through a fire hose, the servicers have a lot to deal with. And um, as an industry, I think we need to be strong in our voice in supporting the, the servicers with regard to these consumers. The consumers don't really understand that we're not like making up these rules. We're just following rules that have been um, issued to us. So they seem to think that we are private banks with a portfolio and can, can basically do anything we want when in reality, we're just following a directive. But I would urge your members, our members, to make sure that we have our voice heard with regard to the servicing piece, because I do think that's going to be a challenge and probably um, it's going to be more pro-consumer from a Biden perspective than it would have been from a Republican perspective, which would have been maybe a bit more business more pro, but I think as long as we help um, our legislation understand and our government understand what we're dealing with, that we might have a better outcome. As to the first time home buyers credit, you know, Rich, um, I'm, I'm a very uh, consumer friendly person. And I think whatever we can do to help more people get in homes, as I said earlier, um, it's the greatest path to wealth. However, I don't think enough has really been said with regard to how the program's going to work. Um, you know, what I know is they can get a credit of up to $15,000 if they're married, uh, seven and a half if they're single to first-time homeowners. 
and that the um, proposal will cost about $25 billion annually. So, you know, both as a mortgage banker and a citizen, you know, I, I think that um, uh, a home buyer credit would be a good thing. Um, some people have tried to or have, I believe, said or how maybe how I heard it was it would replace the mortgage interest deduction, but that's not what I understand. My understanding is it would be in addition to help people get into homes. Thanks, Anita. And uh, another, what you're in Colorado, uh, affordable housing units. Uh, some other, some talk that the Biden administration, I believe it was in his written plan on his website, would invest some money uh, annually into the construction of affordable housing units, at least where I am in Ohio. It is an issue. I mean, if you are a first time home buyer, you know, that wants to buy $150,000 house here in Ohio, there is like nothing. Um, all the new homes that are being built are, you know, $400,000 and up, which where I'm at in Cleveland is a lot for a house. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's just been a lot written and a lot said about this issue in general, some going as far as to call it an affordable housing crisis in America, that the housing stock that becomes dilapidated and raised and knocked down um, each year, they're not being replaced with units that are affordable for first-time home buyers. Any thoughts on the affordable housing issue in America and any potential, uh, you know, government-aided solutions that could 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 help things there? Yeah, for for us and you know what I know, same same situation. If people are trying to buy in in Denver Metro, but I think cities like Denver who have put in uh, rails where you can take a train, that's really people's option. So um, I've heard about these micro units that are being built that are like, you know, five to 600 square feet, you know, some of them luxury with, um, granite and all of this kind of stuff, you know, I, I sit there and I think to myself, that's not even logical because I get that these young people maybe want to live in town and have access to bars and all of that kind of stuff. But how sustainable is a 600 square foot house with granite? You know, they're probably going to raise a family, get pets, and it, it just doesn't work on a long-term basis. But, you know, the infrastructure, if you can get on a train and travel outside of the uh, Metroplex and find a more affordable home. Um, I've also heard about, uh, I was at a Fannie Mae roundtable, obviously, over a year ago, um, and talking about some of the um, modular housing and that kind of being a newer wave. But, you know, that is going to depend on, on the quality of, of the homes that are being built and, you know, the long-term sustainability. But to your point, I don't know. The only thing I've, I've heard anybody speak of, um, which was actually our, our governor in Colorado, said, you know, people just have to move farther away. And if the infrastructure is there for them to take a train and, you know, to Rob's point earlier, with people working from home, I think people are just going to have to spread out and, you know, find homes that are not maybe where they traditionally want it to be. 
Sunita, uh, Rich Swarbinski with the Mortgage Collaborative. We have a couple minutes left with Megastar Financial President and CEO, Anita Padilla Fitzgerald. And uh, before we depart, Anita, I got to get your thoughts just on home prices and home values in general skyrocketing. I believe the latest uh, um, Case Shiller index, like year over year, in a lot of markets, up 20% home values. Um, you know, if you're a current homeowner and you're building equity, certainly a good thing. If you are a first time home buyer, once again, or someone looking to get in at the bottom end of the market, um, you know, maybe not as great. Um, and also maybe some negative long-term potential impacts. You hear the world housing bubble and you know, we all remember, you know, what has happened in the industry in the past as it relates to values. Any thoughts on just the explosion is not even too strong of a word of, of home values these last couple of years. Honestly, I've thought about that. I've read on it. And, you know, I don't really know what to think, right? So when COVID hit, you would have thought maybe the opposite. So I think, um, you know, back to the work from home model. So people uh, started, I guess, spreading out and moving into different places. And, you know, depending on what part of the country you live in, um, are people looking to live in a high-rise condo or are they looking, you know, more for a single-family home? So maybe people are looking at their homes as uh, places to work and spend more time and want more space. So people are, are buying and selling houses. Um, I, I really find it just quite frank, frankly fascinating to see what's going on around the country. I own property in Denver, I own property in Vail. I own property in Park City, Utah. I own property in Pebble Beach, California, and all of those places. So you look at Park City, Utah, in their market, their luxury market in particular, has just gone up. Where you look at Pebble Beach, California, it's gone down. You look at, you know, the Colorado uh, Metroplex, you can't find a house, a, a starter home for a million dollars. So it's just... Um, it's just, I mean, the market's just everywhere. And honestly, I don't really know what to think. What What are your thoughts? You know, it's, you could go one of two ways. I mean, certainly there's the bubble fears, right? That uh, what we're seeing now is overblown and artificial because of just in, a lot of underlying factors that contribute to the inventory issue that's driving this ultimately. There's just not enough homes. The demand is greatly higher than the supply right now. It's pushing values up. Uh, on the other hand, it, the market could be correcting, you know, I mean, I, the value of a home right now, for all the reasons you mentioned, people working from home, everything that the country and the world has been through these last nine months, people place more value in their home. People want larger homes. They're there more. Uh, a trend that certainly will reverse a little bit, but maybe not entirely, uh, God willing, when we get out the other end of this pandemic. So, um, you know, like most things, I think the reality is probably somewhere in the middle that we are seeing a correction to the housing market, that if you did buy a home four or five years ago, it was likely a great time to buy a house because of everything going on right now, even if the market corrects um, that, you know, you're going to see your home continue to build equity, certainly not at the pace we've seen this last year or two, but more than historical standards. Um, but, you know, if you're buying a house like today or next spring, um, you know, I think your expectations for the appreciation of that value it should not be in line with what we've seen the last couple of years. I do think you made a great point with the supply and demand, right? So you don't see as much supply because, you know, a lot of people are hunkering down. 
but then you have the demand for people who are thinking, you know, I want a bigger house or I want to, I can, I now can go work in the mountains where I've always wanted to work, or I can go work out on a farm where I've always wanted to be, or I can get a bigger house that's an hour away from where I was driving because I can now work for home from home. So, you know, that's definitely a part of it. But to your point, the underlying issue is, you know, what's the underlying issue? And all I can think of is people are putting more value in their homes and they're figuring out in their life that I, I don't have to drive to downtown Denver every day. I can go live an hour away and have a bigger home with a yard and that's what I want to do. And then you have the other side of people saying, well, I'm not going to sell my house. You know, I'm happy I have a house and here's where I want to be. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not smart enough to like figure out the mechanics on this, but you know, ultimately I do think that a big part of the solution could be in, you know, finding a way uh, if it's tax credits or subsidies to home builders to build lower priced homes. I mean, you know, just the home builders I know, the mechanics on it just makes no sense for a home builder to build a house under $300,000, $350,000, no matter what part of the country you're in, between the cost of lumber, the cost of regulation, the cost of all the different third parties that are involved in the uh, in contractors in the home building process, that's, it's no, it's no mystery why home builders are only building homes above a certain level. That's not worth their time and energy from the profit they'd make off it. So, um, you know, of all the things I've seen proposed from the Biden administration, and they don't go into great detail, um, you know, some sort of uh, government assistance or aid to help create more affordable housing stock, I do think is something that would be a good thing for our industry in America. So, yeah, land, lumber, and labor. <laughs> well, we are out. Of, we are out of time, but uh, I want to thank all of our attendees uh, for spending some time with us. We're here every time, uh, every week, same time, same place, Tuesday at two o'clock Eastern. And uh, certainly want to thank you, Anita Padilla Fitzgerald. Thank you very much for once again uh, being my co-pilot here on the last week in mortgage today. Always fun. Thanks. Have a great afternoon, For everyone. For more information Take care. about how you can get involved with TMC Connect and witness the power of the network firsthand, please visit us at mortgagecollaborative.com.